Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, mental illness and mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the Uni of Sydney. Today, our top 10 favourite topics, favourite episodes that we've covered through the year. We've done, uh, we've released uh, a, a podcast app every week, so that's 52, excluding this one, 51. So we've got plenty to talk through. The Mining Your Mind book is out, of course, that includes lots of content to the practical strategies uh, from our book. But uh, yes, top 10. Ian, you got five, I've got five, yeah? Yes, and I have gone out and consult to so have I. the listener, or in my case, the twins. Oh, good. We've consulted stakeholders. I've consulted mother-in-law, friend Doug, and uh, our producer Rod, and picked two of my own. Okay. Well, for those who know my family, T1 and T2, Twin 1 and T2, are our most, and I'm very surprised, devoted, but also critical listeners. Hmm. So we've, we've, we've got to, Anyway, so my first top five. Also, i got to say, for people who listen to this regularly, James does all the selection, in case you don't get this, and all the work to prepare all these things, and often I'm very reluctant. For very James reluctant. raised the issue about mental health in hospitals this year, mm. a topic I would have gone out of my way to not discuss. Why? Oh, because it's so complicated and experiences right. with hospitals. It caused me to reflect on why hospitals are so important and why the acute part of the mental health system is so important and what it should do and all the issues that people are having. And it's an episode I would have never done spontaneously, but having done it, I suggest it's one of our better ones. Yeah. So my personal number five was the mental health in hospitals. I think what was what I was interested in was just a user's experience because I kind of know what to do if I get a gash in my head. I go to emergency and I kind of know what will happen. I'll be triaged. There'll be someone will do what needs to be done, hopefully, before I bleed to death. They'll send me away. If I need any further treatment, they'll probably tell me. But if I had to go to hospital for a mental health emergency, would I be there for weeks? What what is what if what if I didn't want to go and someone took me? All that stuff. So it goes through involuntary admission, voluntary admission, and, and what you guys do when you see someone in hospital, right? So two bits. Yeah. What you said, we all should know what to do in a crisis. And we do know in a physical health crisis, ring triple zero. In a mental health crisis, people often don't know what to do. Mm. And why hospitals should be therapeutic and not punitive, why the experience should be good, not bad. So yeah. that's – and at least T2 agrees with me that that's actually an important episode. Yeah, yeah, good. Your turn. My turn is – well, this is from my mother-in-law, Anna. Should we talk about death? Um, uh, I think it was my idea. Death is probably the most avoided subject and yet something that at some point comes for us all. So isn't it good to have a bit of a think about it, have a bit of a talk about it? We talked about how to prepare – you know, for our own impending death, but also how do you talk to people who can see it on the horizon, either because they're unwell or just because they're getting very old? Should you talk to them about it? It's always very awkward. What do you do to give them space to talk about it if if they want to but not force them to? Yeah, I think we've had a bias in this whole um, series towards the problems of younger people and uh, mm. adolescent onset and all that sort of stuff that preoccupies me. I'm glad to see... Anna joining in here. Yeah. And, you know, those of us who've moved into, I think I made the comment, I'm visited by the people from superannuation who tell me I've reached preservation age. Mm. <laughs> and I'm sure preservation age precedes dying. Yeah. You know, and the realisation, life has an end point. Mm. 
So I think that's a really important episode. Good on you, Anna, for raising that one. Mm. I'm glad that that kind of happened. You're moving through these quite quickly, aren't you? It's going to be a very short episode. No, I'm sure um, we can dwell. <laughs> your next one. Um, so T2 also chucked in one of my favourite topics, mental health and seasons, seasonality. Of course, this taps into my absolutely favourite and just got refunded, thank you to national agencies, about body clocks, circadian systems. Yeah. It also ties to the episode on atypical depression, which you raised, James. The two are related, so I'm going to get two for one here. Mental health seasons and atypical depression, both because they go the way external events drive on-off phenomena in the depression world that we still really don't understand, which is great because it's fabulous for my research career. I get funded endlessly to try and understand this phenomena. But it does fascinate me. External things like seasons and lights, which cause these changes in our internal systems that we're yeah. not really aware of, that we respond to. And I would really like people to know more about that stuff. Well, I must say, like I knew a little bit about a lot of the topics we've discussed. But when you said to me, um, oh, and by the way, we should do something on seasonality because in autumn and spring, when the amount of light in the day is changing rapidly, that can really set people off on depression. I went, really? Come on, that's that sounds a bit silly. Hey, really? You can see the look the on his face. You should see the look on his face. You're kidding. Yeah. <laughs> You're kidding. So, so to learn that it actually did have an enormous, can have an enormous effect on some people who are sensitive to it was yeah, quite it was a lot of people, of not just yeah. randoms. Yeah. So there's that effect. And also into the, into the atypical depression episode, how that's one of the factors that feeds into this weird on-off phenomena. So atypical depression, um, for those who haven't listened to the episode, is you're depressed but not all the time. You might have three absolutely terrible days, then five days where everything's totally normal, go to work, you do everything, it's great, and then within sometimes minutes – you can switch again into this horrible deep depression for two days, good four days, um, and it can be. I mean, it can be very hard to. And the depression's a low energy rather than a low mood state. It's so a not leaden doing, limbs. Yeah, leaden limbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really interesting. Very irritable with other people. Well, the irritability. Some people say I'm irritable, but you know, it's got that on-off and that energy. It's different. It's mm. different to what the people. Again, I think people who've never been in that state, their idea of depression is a kind of low mood we all experience in relation to sort of disappointment and other things that happen. They go, what are you talking about? They go, look, this thing, it's really different. Leaden limbs, can't move, low energy, and it has this switch kind of phenomena. So for those of us a little bit of brain science interest, a little neuroscience interest, and this is happening in relation to external events like seasonality and light change, what is going on? Like what is So from a medical research point of view, it's fascinating. And it is one of the things that really brings home, oh, this is chemical stuff. Like if you're feeling anxious or feeling depressed, you can kind of con yourself into thinking it's all mind stuff, I'm just feeling down. But when you see or experience atypical depression where within minutes you can go from feeling really happy with the world to feeling like the world is a horrible place, it really does make you think there's chemical things changing in your brain fairly rapidly. Yes. Mm. Your turn. Yes, my turn for number two. Uh, look, two, this is, are we? <laughs> what? Which way are we going? Yes, okay. Or number four. Are we counting down? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Autonomy. Um, because it made me realise, and I'd never really thought about it before, how important a sense of autonomy is for me in general mood, general happiness. Um, and I realised that if I look back on all the work I'd done in my life, 
the ones I enjoyed weren't necessarily the high profile most, weren't necessarily the high profile ones or the ones that got me the most attention or even had the most enjoyable tasks. The ones I enjoyed more and felt most at home were where I had the most autonomy. Very important. Regular listeners know we go on about two things for your mental health, social connection and personal autonomy. And I Mm. tend to go on about the social connection one, a bit preoccupied by that. But the truth is the personal autonomy one does really matter. COVID knocked it out the window. I was reflecting uh, recently, on. I was asked to reflect, which is even worse, about aspects of my own career, things I'd done. And I, I had clearly made choices at certain times, which had a stack to do with autonomy. Me too. I like to be free. Yeah. Don't tell me any of my employers, okay? I like to be free to do the kind of things I want to do. So I'll often make choices. Because you do work for a very large organisation, the University of Sydney. Shh, yeah. quiet. Right. <laughs> but you've got your own- Apparently there are KPIs and expectations mm. and whatever else, but in various choices I've made in the academic career that I've been in and whatever has put a very high price. Some would say a lack of capital gain, but a very high price on personal autonomy. I've always wanted to do the things that free to do. And in a research sense, be free to pursue the topics I wanted to pursue. So I reckon, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, if autonomy is very important to me, but it took doing a podcast on it at age 56 for me to realise that. It might be useful for you, the listener, to reflect on autonomy in your own life. It's not, you know, it might be really important to you and might be causing distress in some area of your life that you haven't got as much. It might not be as important to you, but it is worth thinking about, you know. It it really made me think when I embarked on a collaborative project that was a really good project and really satisfying, and yet through it I just felt a bit off, and it was because I had less autonomy than I do in most of my projects. So there's a tension. There's a tension between – it's a very interesting tension you raise between sort of group processes where one has to surrender a degree of autonomy Mm. to work as part of a team yeah, and other things that, you know, actually (laughs) – I want to be in charge of my own life to some degree. I want to make some decisions. I feel a whole lot better mm. when I'm doing that. Yeah. So that one, I think, I agree, James, important episode to dwell on. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say about, te- you know, can you teach that earlier on? Often, and speaking with younger people who, you know, I should do this, I should do that, my parents want me to do this. I go, um, um, what do you want? What would you like to do? How could that work out for you? What could you do, you know, so at least – well, that, I mean, that is good. Be so a path to a you know well regulated success in life in relationships. Is that really you know, or are you just going to be constrained? Well, most people in their twenties and thirties, actually, particularly in work, are in situations where they don't have much autonomy because they're down the bottom of the pyramid. What advice would you give for those who find that frustrating uh, um, at that age? A, you're justified in being frustrated. <laughs> yeah. B. To what extent within the constraints constraints of wherever you're in can you exercise more autonomy? So I think it's a really issue. You mentioned the University of Sydney, big organisations. Big organisations flourish when they can actually have high degrees of autonomy at lower levels of, if you like, the structure of the organisation. Mm. And organisations die when that autonomy is only reserved for the executive class. Actually, when I do my talks to people about how to be more innovative, people often ask at the end, well, how can I, you know, I'm in an organisation, how can I make the whole organisation more innovative? And I said, oh, don't do that. Don't don't try and do that. That'll be really hard. Work Work out how you can be more innovative in what you control. Are you in a team of four? Can you all then agree amongst the four of you to do some things that will help you look at what you do and think of ways of doing it better. But if you want to change the whole 800 of you, that could be an exercise Struggle. in frustration. <laughs> yes, yes, frustration. Do what yes, you can. Yes. Your third one. Recently, we did do the one about 
thoughts, emotions, behaviours. Yes. Now, it sounds straightforward. It's not. But it's not. It's very interesting. And that kind of uh, taxonomy, that way of splitting up what we're looking at, you know, in terms of um, we discussed things everyone needs to know in my public education, things everyone needs to know, that kind of differentiation that comes out of a lot of cognitive behavioural and other emotional and other sort of theory I think is really important. Mm. And being able to look at oneself in terms of one's thoughts, one's emotions, and then what the hell you do mm. and how the th- three things interact over time. They are often the need to stop and think about it. Yep. So I run into people all the time who've never even thought about that. Mm. They just assume it's one jumble of a thing or they assume their cognitive rationality is in charge or they just do stuff and never think about it or whatever. Yeah. So I think as a piece of sort of public education bit, and I think it was your idea again, Joe, I know it was your idea, yeah, to stop and be specific yeah, about it, it. It is really, I found it really interesting to find out a bit more about how our thoughts, emotions, and behaviours, A, get tangled up, so to try and distinguish them from each other and then work out how they interact with each other, when does the thought come first and lead to the behaviour, when does the behaviour come first, I don't know what happened, I just did it, then I tried to work out what I was, well, when does the emotion come first and when do if we're more aware of the interrelationship between the three how does that help us kind of work out when it's helpful and when it's unhelpful? Now, I'm going to get two for one here yeah, because it leads into another one, eight rated by T1, whatever it is, which leads into change. How, it's how very change? hard to actually change, and it leads, I'm going to get three for one here, wow. another episode about how therapy works. Yes. Because if you can't do that analysis, you can't actually change. Yeah, right. And most therapy-type situations – also require some kind of analysis of that kind of thing. So maybe give an example of the... Well, people do stuff all the time. Mm. You know, they've got repetitive behaviours and they never really kind of stop and think what's driving that behaviour. Right. I mean, I think a good example of automatic behaviour is walking past the fridge and ending up with a, you know, a biscuit (laughs) Chocolate mousse in my hand, yes. And thinking, what happened? What happened? Yeah. It, it just happened automatically. And so I guess being aware of that and trying to work out what the thought is, what the emotion is. I deal with people who say, oh, don't get angry. They get angry every time. The same kind of emotional stimulus, they have the same angry response every time. Mm. Right? There's an emotional response, an emotion thing, and it results in screaming and yelling and whatever else. Yeah. They go, what? I'm not emotional. <laughs> I didn't do that. <laughs> uh, can we just stop right there? <laughs> you mm. know? Yes, you were. And there's an emotional element that's being denied and whatever else. And it's been provoked in certain kinds of things, certain sort of situations. And a, well, and a more serious then behavioural analysis of what's the situation that invokes that anger, that invokes then a behaviour that's incredibly destructive mm. for that person. So being aware of the pattern helps you to change yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and being able to deconstruct it mm. into those various elements. Yeah, good, good, good. All right, so my next one, this is from Rod, our producer. He loved cognitive dissonance. Did he? Yeah. Cognitive dissonance where we are able to hold two competing thoughts at the same time. For example, we're going broke and everything we, we have to we have the family has to keep the house. And it can cause an enormous amount of mental anguish, can't it? Mental turmoil. Yeah, thanks, Rod. I was a bit worried that episode might just go over everyone's head or be a bit uninteresting or no, whatever else. Hmm. Again, obviously, your suggestion. I think it came out of uh, James raised the topic. Hmm. Again, I think, um, and thanks, Rod, I don't think people stop 
with that one enough. Yeah, and identify the two thoughts. Yeah, 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 and th- th- that tension. I want a biscuit, I want to lose weight. Yeah. I heard a related, um, I think it was somebody else's podcast, on resolving paradoxes. Oh, you yeah. don't always resolve them. They are actually paradoxes. There are yeah. actually situations in which there are these conflicting things. Mm. We often rush to try and solve the problem mm. <laughs> by simply accepting one or simply accepting the other when actually it's often just not as simple as that. Yeah. It's not easy to sit with and consider what might actually be at stake mm. and, and try and find out better ways. So, again, you know, and I guess in a world that you're always trying to reemphasize with me, James, in the cognitive world, in the thinking about it world, Thinking sensibly about it. Yeah. Yes. So thanks, Rod. Yeah. 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 But it is really interesting when you're feeling a bit of inner anguish about something. Try and identify what your thoughts are about. You know, we all have a lot of of, of those almost unconscious thoughts. Things have to go well for my kids. And then when, you know, something isn't going well for one of your kids, you think, but things have to go well for the kids. And that's, you know, things have to. The family has to be fine. Well, once someone in the family isn't fine and... I guess you do, if you identify those thoughts you, and you think, well, the first one, it would be good if everything was fine for the family, but no family gets through their whole lives without some difficulties. So you can put one of the thoughts aside and just deal with the other one. I love the way that I'm just sitting there myself thinking about unconscious thoughts. What's an unconscious thought? As is, they are thoughts. They're thoughts you've got, but they're ones you don't allow into consciousness. They're kind of like they're things that yeah. they're actually cognitive models that you hold. They are things that are influencing your behaviour, but they need to be articulated. They actually need to come into consciousness and be described and presented. And the alternate thought you've got needs to be brought into consciousness and described yes. and considered. And we don't really like to do that. It creates great distress mm. to go, hang on a second, I think that and I think that. <laughs> I can't think both of those things. Well, one of but them I is, do. If someone dies at sixty, you think that's a tragedy because you have an unconscious thought that we all deserve eighty-five years of life, right? Which, of course, is ridiculous. We don't deserve anything. Um, we just get what we're given, and we're lucky to be here. I think. And two hundred years ago, if someone got to sixty, you think lucky. Wow. Baby. Yeah. So that's a kind of unconscious thought. Yeah. So there are all sorts of. We're walking around, as the cognitive therapists point out, with all these sort of templates these kind of models in our head. Yeah. We often haven't taken them out and had a good look at them mm. and find that some of them are really a lay one P76. That really thing shouldn't be on the road. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. It's just really outdated. a bad set of thoughts. It's outdated. It's unhelpful. But we haven't looked at it for a long time ago. The design of that, however the hell I formed that model, it's really a bad model. Probably a lot of sexism and racism comes from those outdated templates in yes. some way. Yes, a lot of things have been built up through experience and through cultural kind of practice and other things. You just accept them. They're actually operative, but you haven't dragged them out yeah. and contrasted them with various sets of views. Yeah. Oh, I was a great talk. This is a real aside. A great talk by Noel Pearson mm. last week in Canberra, your favourite place, James, mm. not mine, um, on intrinsic racism in Australia and ideas and ideas held by non-Indigenous Australians about Indigenous Australians mm. that they constantly deny. And yet you look around at the evidence of what's going on and you go, hang on a second. <laughs> there are assumptions built in here. There are things going on. There are things that are hard to come to terms with. We don't want to see ourselves that way, individually or collectively. Mm. But the evidence tends to be against us, you know. And in trying to consider change, and I think Australia's great identity issue at the moment is coming to terms with its own history. Yeah, right. Well, another example is I was listening to a talk by Dr. Katrina Wallace about artificial intelligence, and she was, you know, we we regard artificial intelligence as kind of, 
neutral, but if it is programmed by a whole group of people, say... Odd young white guys. Yeah, then there will be unconscious... There may be unconscious biases that no one intended that find their way into it and affect how the artificial intelligence deals... Is programmed. With people. You bet. Yeah. Just excellent example. Excellent. Okay, your next one. Um, so you raised the issue... And I didn't even think about it. What do psychiatrists do? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But in my wider world of – and it taps into two related issues, uh, what do other mental health professionals do and what does the mental health system do? Mm. We tend to have this generic kind of thing, which is general psychology or general thinking about. But actually, just like your one about uh, hospitals and acute care, having a better understanding of what different mental health professionals do and then how they can work together. Yes. And I got, I got personal bias, okay, I'm sick of being misunderstood mm. as to what psychiatrists do or they're just custodial or they're just chemical pushes or they're just this or that, as distinct from, of course, the neurobiological aspects of what's going on and the illness aspects of going on and what other fascinating things to do fascinates my life and the syndromal things that we do and having an understanding of that and appreciation of that. It's easy enough to say, what does a brain surgeon do? <laughs> you yeah, assume right. what they do. What does your car mechanic do? Because a lot of people have ideas about what psychiatrists do that have nothing to do with what psychiatrists do. So I kind of like, you know, thought it's kind of nice. Even my own kids, T2, wants to know. That's or as, my, as, as number that? six said to me the other day, Dad, are you really still a psychiatrist? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he was remarking on the fact that his mother clearly is and does really useful, productive work every right. day with people and just wondered about me. Right, I see. Whether I just talk and... Right. Don't really do anything. So as I understand it, the difference, the, the essential difference between a psychiatrist and a counsellor or a therapist and a psychologist is that as a medical doctor, the psychiatrist, psychiatrist can bring a whole of body understanding. They can prescribe medication. They can talk to you about more than how you're thinking and feeling. They can talk to you about how things might be affecting your entire body. Physiologically. Yes. In total. I was taken to task last night by a philosopher. A philosopher. What was my position on the brain and the mind? Goodness. Was the mind just the brain? He'd been betting he'd been betting money that I would say it would be. I went, no. He said, So you're a Cartesian. They're totally separate. I went, no. <laughs> he went, Oh, this is gonna be a longer discussion. Right. But actually the physiological aspects, the way in which our mental life is embodied in all of us physiologically, and we're medical practitioners and we bring that perspective in. Others who come in with different cognitive approaches and different social approaches bring those together. One of my favourite psychiatrists, and I'm going to call it out here because we handed out her medal last week, Professor Helen Herman mm. from Melbourne, previous uh, first female president of the World Psychiatric Association, has a medal for social mental health, which I love. Right. So it's not only the physiology, it's the physiology in its social setting mm. and the inter we often talk about the interpersonal interrelationship setting. So we bring a particular perspective into that, which may assist in the, particularly the management of illness, but also the prevention of illness and strategies, et cetera. So I was very glad that you raised the topic and I got to go on for, I don't know, 40 minutes about me. Yeah, very good, <laughs> very good. So you did touch on this earlier. My fourth of five favourite ep of the year, what is the subconscious? Oh, and my T2 agrees with you, so I'm glad this is on your oh, list. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. So I found it interesting because, well, I was inspired by puddles because I was walking down a track and there was a puddle on it and I found my legs just kind of shortening, then lengthening, then shortening again so that my foot got right, landed right at the edge of the 
puddle and I could step over it. And I thought, how did that happen? I had nothing to do with my foot landing right at the edge of the puddle rather than half a metre in front of it. What was going on? And we talked about how lots of things from that to walking upstairs to tying shoelaces to almost any physical task, cleaning your teeth that we do, get encoded in your brain and we don't have to consciously think about it and leaves the rest of our mind free to, you know, worry about other things. Um, But also about how that little computer in our brain is always constantly analysing people's facial expressions, uh, where their eyes look, how their speech patterns, what they say, their body language, and we don't become aware of all the data that our subconscious takes in, but we do become aware of the conclusion. This person is nice, keep talking to them. There's something off about this person, don't trust them. We get the conclusion and we act on it all the time, but we don't really know How? But our subconscious does. Yeah, I'm so glad you went down that path Mm. because, get back to my medical comments, the brain, I'm going to go to the brain now, the brain and the nervous system is the most fascinating thing. You use the computer analogy, which is the closest human thing that we've been able to kind of think about, the kind, but it doesn't really monitor and do things. You mentioned AI, which is kind of picking up data and trying to make sense of it and whatever. Human brains, human nervous systems are so far in advance of that. Mm. Still really haven't got a clue how it does it. But it does do that all the time. And those remarkable things, being able to walk down and not fall in the puddle, be able to do things, be able to monitor, just all the stuff you don't even, you do not think about. Yeah. But it's doing. Yeah. <laughs> Unrequested. Mm. It's just doing it for it's you. Great. All the time. It's Breathing. fabulous. Breathing. Breathing. Heart beating. Gut working. Standing up, not falling Breathing. over. Mm. You know, enable to engage in conversation, enable to engage in this group activities and the marvellous emotional and cognitive activities we engage in every day. Thank you, Mr. Brain. Yeah. How, Mr. Or gender neutral. Thank yeah. you, Brain. Um, thank you, Brain. Uh, like, and so I was, I was so glad you raised that one because, you know, that's the sort of stop and think about it. It is. You know, what's actually really going on? Mm. A lot of the time I'm not aware of and it's optimised through evolution, however the hell it happened, to have the remarkable lives that we have. Yeah. Yeah, we're lucky. It does all the hard work. When it works. When it goes astray, some yeah. problems. Yeah. All right. Uh, you're, I'm number one. I'm down to number one. Oh, okay. You're counting up, down. Yes. My number one for the year. And I was very anxious about doing this. I'm glad that T1 went for it. Yeah. Different parenting styles. Oh. The one about parenting. Now, for those of us, I'm very sensitive about this because some people know I am the father, apparently, of quite a number of children. Six. And let's just say parenting may not have been my strong suit. <laughs> wow. And I'm very tied up at the moment with early child, with transcultural approaches to different parenting styles. So what's good for all kids from a neuroscience point of view in developing brains, but how different cultures approach that and what might be the best in different sorts of styles? Mm. Every parent wants to be the best parent they can be, I think, mostly. But, you know, there are different styles and different settings relation, and they're different. Yeah. And kids are different. There yeah. are different temperaments. Kids yeah. are not all the same. So there isn't just a one-size-fits-all to this. But also it's a hotly contested area. You don't want to get into areas that cause a great deal of argument. Mm. Yeah, Forget I think, religion, politics, just pick parenting styles. If you've got a kid or you're about to have one, I think it's a really good one to listen to because we do go quite in some depth into the old, you know, how much discipline, you know, r- rules and clear boundaries and ensuring there are consequences when kids transgress versus a more, 
you know, a free range environment and giving the kid more responsibility for their own actions at an earlier age? And what does the evidence tell us? What are the pros and cons of each style? And and also that there isn't a one size fits all, that different kids require different parenting styles, that you can tell one kid quite gently off in one way and they'll never do it again. And, and another kid, you can tell them a hundred times and they will do it again. So how do you adjust given the different temperaments of different children? Yes. Hmm. So um, did I drag you into that one or did you drag me into that one? I think you're I think you're I, you're I, I might on be the one because yep. of my current preoccupations in my research and professional life but also personal life. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it was the one I dragged you into. Yeah. Well, oddly, my number one, on. I outsourced to my friend Doug. G'day, Doug. I just imagine Doug walking along in a street in Melbourne. So I go, ooh, they just talked to me. That'd be quite weird listening to a podcast. Hi, Doug. Um, he wanted, he liked, what do parents do when the kids move out? Oh. We talked about that recently. And it, it does come a time in every parent's life when it's time to get go, let go. That is a process. And some parents try and deny that process. Some, some accept it reluctantly. But then for some parents, when the kids do move out, it can leave something of a hole. All that uh, physical and emotional and mental energy isn't required anymore. So what do you do? And it can be a challenging period. Some people see it as a liberating period. That's what you're supposed to do, aren't you? When you become a parent, you're supposed to say, oh, it's going to be really tough. And when you, you know, your parental duties subside a bit, you're supposed to say, I'm free. But it's not off, It's not always the truth, actually. Sometimes it can be really difficult for parents. So we tried to go into some of the... Um, some of the things to watch out for, some of the things you can do to um, take advantage of the extra space you might have. Good on you, Doug. This is a fairly recent episode that's gone live. Yeah. And I, but since we recorded it, I've been um, sharing some of our views with others. Taking a bit of flack, I've got to say. It has oh. certainly aroused responses. Flack in what way? Oh, well, you know, we picked it up out of another episode. We picked it up out of the side of the one about the kids leaving home. So yeah. we must do an episode about that. And I was thinking, oh, you know, like, what could be controversial about that? Turns out, for exactly the reason you said in the modern world, again, parents are so invested in their kids. Mm. So, of course, we want them to grow up and leave until they do. Yeah. Well, we talked about that. <laughs> I know. And then and then the knock-on effect on parents and their own relationships with their other people in yeah. their lives, not just their kids, so that when the focus is no longer on the whole parenting and whatever else is, you know. So it turns out that episode, Doug, in my own wider world, has elicited much more response than I thought it would. So, give me an example of what you what you what you got back. Because a lot of the people in my world are, are um, in good health and have resources, they're having to rethink. Okay, that phase of that life is over, yeah. right? Got to let the kids go, but I don't really want to because I'm really yeah. I'm really tired into really them. Like so, I'm really hoping they'll yeah. come home. Or, and secondly, I'm going to have to get on with my own life and my own relationships separate from the kids, hmm. where a lot of emotional stuff has gone into the kids. So yeah. what about the relationships now beyond the most intimate relationship in your life or forming new relationships or what? But we talked about all that stuff. I'm I still know, curious why you got flack or what sort of flack. I don't think Bit enough of denial people had stopped. Yes, uh-huh. enough people had stopped to think about it. Right. But they've suddenly found that I'm mean, at that life stage. They've found themselves in that situation. Hmm. So they're kind of what – what it means is they'd been thinking about it themselves in their own particular way. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and like we all do, drawing their own conclusions. Right. 
Some of which disagreed with. Some of which, let's just say, perhaps some of the territory that we covered, you know, suggested there were other... Oh, well, I see. We were talking about parents being a little bit codependent at times, I, I yep. think. Yep. Something like that. Yeah. And if you... Yeah, You've yeah, got to yeah, let yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, might yeah, have yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might have... I might have suggested that, you know, that was a good idea. Right, you did. <laughs> and get on with Quite other strongly. relationships in your life. Did yeah, I? Yeah. Yeah, okay, well, maybe that's what the pushback you, was about. <laughs> right. Oh, well, it's good to get people thinking. No, well, I think we hope, I think we hope with this whole podcasting thing, that's exactly what people would do. Please don't feel obliged to agree with us, particularly not to agree with me. No. Well, <laughs> don't agree with more me. Like, you should more readily agree with Ian because he's an expert than me. You should definitely Although disagree occasionally, with me. Occasionally perhaps his own views somewhat... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Appear to be supported by evidence or not, but you know, That's very if, humble, we, if we if we if we precipitate people to think about these, particularly life transitions, you know, these mm. life transition type points, scary, but exciting. are some of the challenges. We talk about change a lot, and of course, change often happens in the context of life transitions, whether you want it to or not. Mm. And that one was a good one. The kiddies grow up. Yeah, if you succeeded, they move out. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh, good. Well, look, that's our 10 favourite eps of the year. Um, thank you for listening, whether it's just to this one or to the other 90-something. We will be back next year, won't we? Uh, oh, look, I think we'll be back. Yes. If anyone runs it out and buys the book before Christmas, they've got a lot of relatives and friends, all get the book. That'll help us have the podcast come back. Oh, there you go. A bit of emotional blackmail too. To <laughs> Every listener has with. to buy the book <laughs> in order to keep the podcast on the air. Uh, do send us any questions, comments, and especially further topic further topic suggestions. The email minding your mind to minding your mind numeral two at gmail.com. And our podcast is supported by Future Generation Global. Thank you. And the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Thank you. And further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health, and Lifeline. Just Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13114. 